Last week, as you all know, was Easter Sunday, and we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. We celebrated the empty tomb. Uh, It always feels like the most glorious Sunday of the year. But who is Jesus? What is he like, this guy who died and who rose again, whose resurrection we celebrated? We get, as the kids say, we get all the feels celebrating his resurrection. But do we know him? What is it like to know him and to follow him and to love him? What is it like to be taught by him and to be led by him and to be loved by him? Who is he? Today I have the honor of introducing our new sermon series, uh, The Book of Luke. And there are plenty of good reasons to study the book of Luke. The best reason is simply this, to get to know Christ more. That should be our goal with any book of Scripture I know, and and maybe this is subjective, but as as Mike and I were discussing uh, what book to to go through next, uh, we both just seem to be drawn to this task of going through the book of Luke and taking a long, hard look at who Jesus is. Maybe it's because the past few years really have been crazy and confusing times, it feels like, to be a Christian in the world. Uh, We've seen celebrity pastors fall, and there are plenty of non-celebrities as well. We've seen political affiliations divide churches. We've seen crises arise, and churches divide over how to respond, and so-called evangelicals have been in the spotlight, and we wonder, what does the word even mean? In light of everything that's going on in the world, Uh, Who is the church supposed to be? It seems to me we can't have an answer about who the church is supposed to be until we have a clear picture of who Christ is, because we're supposed to be like him, and we're supposed to act like him, and the world outside is watching and will draw conclusions about who Christ is based on how his followers act. So it's important that we know who is he. It seems to me a good time to go back to the basics and take a fresh look at who Jesus is and what the community that follows him is meant to be as well. That's essentially what Luke does in his gospel. Uh, If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. We'll just be looking at the first four verses in our introduction. It's, It's Luke's introduction to the gospel account that he writes as he writes the story of Jesus. I'm not sure what page it's in in the Pew Bible. Uh, If you find it, you you can yell it out there. But Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Let me read that for us before we begin. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Before we dig into this, you might be wondering... uh, who are these guys? Uh, who is Theophilus? And, and maybe even who is Luke, for that matter? Um, seems like a good thing to cover in an introduction to the book of Luke. Who on earth is Luke? We'll start with him. 
Uh, we know that he was a missionary companion of Paul. Paul mentions him in three of his letters, I believe, the letter to Philemon and uh, second letter to Timothy, and also the letter to Colossians. And it's in Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 4, uh, verse 14, that we learn some details about Luke. We learn that he was a physician. Uh, Paul calls him the uh, beloved doctor. And we also learn that Luke is probably not Jewish. Uh, Paul lists a few, of, a few men who are the only companions that he has of the circumcision, meaning, meaning Jews, and, and Luke isn't one of those. So it seems reasonable Luke is a Gentile, not, not Jewish. So Luke is a Gentile doctor turned missionary who worked alongside Paul. And that's about all that we know about him. Uh, this may blow your mind, but the Bible doesn't directly tell us that Luke, Luke, Luke doesn't directly tell us that Luke wrote the book that we call Luke that we're about to study. I, I know your Bible says Luke in big letters at the top of the page you're looking at, but th those aren't in the, the the manuscripts. It's not like a grade school homework assignment where he put his name on the top there. People added that later, just like we added the subject headings and the verse numbers and chapter numbers. It seems likely that the book of Luke was written by somebody who fits Luke's description. Uh, we know that Luke and Acts were written by the same author. They're both addressed to Theophilus. Uh, we know that Acts was most likely written by a companion of Paul. There are several times that the narrator, uh, in, in telling Paul's story, uses the word we. He's talking like he was along with them, so he probably was along with them and a companion of Paul. Uh, most scholars also believe that Luke and Acts were written by a Gentile. There's a particular focus on the gospel going to the Gentiles. And there's a place in Acts chapter 1, verse 19, where the author of Acts refers to, uh, he uses a word in Aramaic, the language most Jews spoke, uh, at least in Palestine, and, and refers to it as their language. It's not his language, it's their language. So Luke fits the bill here as a Gentile companion as Paul, of Paul, but so do several others. Um, at the end of the day, the decisive factor for Luke uh, seems to be tradition. Uh, the early church from very early days believed that this was written by Luke. Uh, they settled on it unanimously without much debate, really any debate, uh, and early enough that there may have been some people around who, who knew Luke and could confirm that he wrote it. So on the one hand, uh, you know, tradition's not on the same level as, as the Word of God, and you know, if, if there's some interpretation that comes up for the, the, the book of Luke that, that somehow fails if it wasn't written by Luke, um, you know, I'd be careful with that. But at the same time, you know, if you want to reject tradition altogether, uh, you're going to have to call the book of Luke something else. Uh, the same really goes for Matthew and, and Mark and John. So most likely this was written by, by Luke. Um, on to Theophilus. Uh, Luke does mention Theophilus by name, not only here, but also in the introduction to the book of Acts. We don't know much about Theophilus. Uh, we're not sure where he lived, don't know how he knew Luke. Uh, we know that his name means friend of God or maybe beloved of God. And so it's tempting to think that maybe the name Theophilus, uh, maybe it wasn't really a, a real person. Uh, maybe it's just sort of a, a stand-in for whoever's reading it. That person is loved of God, or Luke is writing to friends of God. It's a way of referring to the Christian reader, whoever they may be. 
I lean toward Theophilus being a real person for a couple of reasons. The scholars tell us that they don't really have any other examples of ancient works that were addressed to a made-up person. Um, So it's not clear that Luke's readers would have picked up on that if that's what he was doing. Uh, Also, Luke uses a title. He calls him the most most excellent Theophilus and most excellent... um, it sounds like something we would have said back in the 90s or so, 80s or some skater, most excellent Ninja Turtles or something. But it's a formal way of, of talking to an official or somebody with some rank in society. Luke is kind of being polite, uh, following etiquette. And that seems more likely if he was addressing a, a certain person who, who would normally be addressed that way. So I think Theophilus is probably a man of some social standing. Uh, The name could be a Jewish name or a Greek name, but uh, since Luke focuses again on Gentiles so much and the gospel going to Gentiles, probably seems likely he was a Gentile. Either way, it seems that Theophilus, I'm going to have trouble saying his name, Theophilus, seems he was a Christian. Uh, Verse 4, Luke says he wants Theophilus to have certainty concerning the things he has been taught, so he's received some instruction in the faith apparently, so most likely a believer. But of course, uh, neither Luke nor the Holy Spirit uh, intended this book to be read only by this one guy and then maybe shredded or something. It's it's possible that Theophilus is just the guy who is is funding Luke's writing project. The the papyrus would have been expensive, and if he's traveling to to talk to others who knew Jesus and eyewitnesses, that, that could have been expensive. But uh, surely it was meant to be read by the rest of the church where Theophilus lived, too. I, I need to get away from saying this guy's name. Um, but it, it seems likely also that that church would have been mostly Gentile, but there were probably some Jews present as well that would have read it. So at the end of the day, what we know for sure about the background is that the book was written by a companion of Paul and written to believers who needed assurance. As he says uh, in the last verse He writes that you may have certainty. So believers who need assurance, I think we can find some connection there, can't we? So that's what we know about who wrote it, who it was written to. Uh, Let's dig into the passage, and the passage is one long run-on sentence. So I want to kind of start with an overview, and I only have one slide. You can see I outdid myself on the slides this morning. Uh, But if you can read that, there's kind of a pattern here. Uh, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the, of the things that happened, just as those who delivered us, it kind of follows the same pattern. It seemed good to me also to write an account that you may have certainty. In other words, many people are writing down the story of Jesus, the story that they heard from those who were friends of Jesus, who were there from the beginning, who became ministers of the word, who, who told them, taught them about Jesus. Luke says, I'm going to do that too. I'm going to write down Jesus' story for you, guy whose name I can't say this morning apparently, to give you certainty about what you've heard about Jesus. That's the text in a nutshell. And now, you could read this and think that Luke is saying uh, he's going to set the record straight, right? Look, all these people, they're trying to tell the story of Jesus, and it's just 
It's a big mess. Uh, they're trying, they're getting it wrong, they're putting events out of order, they're, they're mixing up the details. The result is that you're confused about this whole story and all these, these seemingly contradictory details and, and you're wondering if it's even true. So I, Luke, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an orderly account. I'm going to sort out all the details, untangle this mess, give you a nice, clean, precise, chronological account and once you have all that, you'll see how it all fits together, you'll have objective evidence, you'll have proof that this is true, and that will give you certainty. You can tell by the way I'm talking, I, I don't think that's what Luke is doing exactly for a few reasons. Uh, for one thing, he's not negative toward those who are, are telling the story of Jesus to, to these many people who have undertaken to compile an account. He doesn't portray them as sloppy and disorderly. Verse 1 says they've undertaken to compile a narrative. The word he uses for compile there basically means to arrange in order. So th their work is orderly. And then in verse 2 he points out that it is based on eyewitness testimony. And eyewitness testimony today, but especially in the ancient world, that's an important standard for factual accuracy. There are eyewitnesses that I've talked to that at this point are still around. You can confirm what I've said with them. Most importantly, though, I think is in verse 3, where Luke says, it seemed good to me also to write an account. The also is pretty important there. Luke pictures himself as joining their work. He brings up these other writers uh, not to say, I'm going to fix their mess, but to establish a precedent for his own work. Uh, this prologue, we'll call it, to his gospel account, uh, is similar to prologues that you find in other ancient writers who would begin a book by pointing to the work of others who wrote similar books. It, it's not to point out that yours is better, but to show that you're not doing something off the wall and, and crazy, uh, there's a precedent for what you're doing. What you're doing is similar to what other people have done. And maybe it tells them what kind of book that they're about to read. It's similar to other works you've probably heard of. It legitimizes what you are doing in, in writing this book. So if there's a distinction to Luke's work, I, I think it comes in verse 4, where he says he's writing this for Theophilus. Uh, to write an, accord, an orderly account for you, Theophilus. I remember that this is before you had the printing press or the copy machine or before you could buy a, you know, a, a ream of paper for cheap and just run off copies or type something up on a blog and, and hit publish and it goes out. Um, you had to make copies writing it out by hand and that was time consuming and the materials were expensive. So it would have taken some time for any writings that we now know of as the New Testament, it would have taken a long time for some of those to circulate around the church, which is spread out across the whole Roman Empire. So it makes sense for Luke to write this for this group of, of Christians that he has some connection with. But since Luke is writing for a specific person and specific church community around him, He's also aware of their specific needs and the things that uh, concern them, their situation. In verse 4, he identifies a need for certainty concerning the things they have been taught. 
Now, why do they need certainty? Um, it seems to me that today, at least when I think about certainty, I think about a story of a good Christian kid who goes off to college and meets an evil philosophy professor uh, played by Kevin Sorbo, and the kid has to find the right logical arguments to defeat Kevin Sorbo in single combat while simultaneously reviving the career of a Christian rock band from the 90s. Um, I'm not sure what I was talking about there. But um, all that to say, when you think of certainty, you might think about uh, objective proof, uh, logical, historical, philosophical arguments for the truth about Jesus, uh, case for Christ kind of thing, and, and there's, those are good things. Uh, but I don't think that's the whole story for Luke's readers. Excuse me, just a moment. It's the allergy season. So hoop de doo um, So I, I think there's more going on with Luke's readers than just factual accuracy. I can't say that either. They did care about factual accuracy. Luke's make, he makes a big deal about his own careful investigation, uh, where it says that he followed things closely for some time past, there are some nuances of translation we could spend some time on there, but the basic idea is that Luke has studied the evidence for who Jesus was and is and what Jesus said and did, and he studied that in depth. And, and like the other writers, he's gone to the sources. Uh, we know he quotes Mark, for example, and that Matthew and Luke uh, both consulted some of the same sources in, in writing their Gospels because they they. they quote things and, and word things the same way. So Luke's study gives him some expertise in talking about the story of Jesus. He's qualified to talk about this. So they were concerned about the accuracy and facts, but there's more to it than that. As we keep reading the book of Luke, we find out that Luke didn't write primarily to prove Christianity is true. He, he doesn't cite historical sources or make logical arguments. He doesn't so much try to prove the story of Jesus as he proclaims Jesus. See, intellectual attacks on our belief system, they're not the only reason we struggle with assurance. I would argue they're not even the primary reason or main reason we can struggle with assurance. I don't think it normally starts in the head uh, as the saying goes, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. I think our head usually follows our, our hearts. So we see this happen in our lives every day. And I believe uh, in, in God, and it's easy for me to believe that when things are going well for me. I know evil exists in the world and that, that good people suffer, but when I'm not the one suffering much, I'm not bothered that much by that fact. But when things get rough, that's when I start to wonder, is God even there? Am I an idiot to believe this? Uh, apparently, there are a few things that may have disturbed the assurance of Luke's readers. For one thing, uh, the church, in some ways, just didn't look impressive. I mean, yes, in the book of Acts, you see the church growing and growing, and it's inspiring and amazing to us to look at, but you know, as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, not many Christians are wise by worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. God chooses the weak to shame the strong, Paul wrote, but the result is that uh, the church ends up being filled with weak people. Uh, 
Uh, history tells us the early church was disproportionately female, possibly because New Testament Christianity valued women in ways that the world did not. The Romans believed that women had weak judgment and couldn't make responsible decisions for themselves. Uh, they needed to be under the guardianship of a man at all times, or they would not act in their own best interest. What does that say about a movement that has attracted so many women? What does it say about husbands who follow their wives into this faith? Are they whipped, beta males? Is Christianity just a bunch of sugary, slipshod female thinking? And we know Christianity also spread quickly among the poor and among slaves. And uh, Romans often viewed uh, the poor as, as lazy and, and ignorant and fully deserving of their poverty. So... Uh, this kingdom of God turns out to be a kingdom of paupers, simpletons, and rogues. And this whole thing is based on the teachings of some Jewish guy whom the Jewish leaders themselves rejected. A people who made it their life, life's work to study the Hebrew Bible decided that this Jesus guy was not the Messiah, not the fulfillment of their scriptures. If, if he couldn't get a hearing in the backwater province of Judea, why should the mighty Roman world listen and with the rejection of Jesus by Jewish leaders came the rejection of the church. Already in the book of Acts, uh, we see persecution. Uh, we know the Romans allowed the practice of the Jewish religion and that initially Christianity was kind of under that umbrella. But as the Jews reject Christianity, it uh, becomes illegal to be a Christian. They lose that protection. And there was conflict between Jews and Gentiles in the church, too. We see this recorded in, in Acts. Uh, the Jews grew up following the law of Moses and, and many other laws their teachers has, had added as well, but many of them can't just in good conscience stop doing that. But do they have the right to ask Gentiles to follow those laws to, to make them more comfortable? Uh, some become Judaizers. Uh, they try to require Gentiles to adopt circumcision and, and all these other Jewish laws and customs. And so the result is that Gentiles may be thinking, do we belong here? Is this Jewish Messiah for us? But Jews might be thinking, why do so many of my brothers and sisters in Israel reject Jesus? You can see how this starts to raise doubts. How can Jesus be the Messiah, the one promised by the Hebrew Bible when Jewish experts on that Bible reject him? How can Jesus be our king if, if we're not Jewish? If Jesus rose from the dead, why do we still suffer and die? If Jesus is victorious, why do his people seem to keep losing? If Jesus' kingdom is so glorious, why is it filled with wimps and losers? If God's kingdom has come, how come it seems like his will is never done? And we wrestle with similar questions, I think. Uh, we fear our way of life is slipping away. We fear the church getting smaller, losing influence, fading away. We fear persecution. We want the church to be big and impressive. There's a view called uh, dominion theology that, that teaches we need to take over parts of the culture like arts and education and politics and business and you sometimes see that in a call to to take back America. This is kind of interesting to me. We even hear the same concern about um, 
a church is full of women and, and maybe uh, the church is getting too feminine. Maybe we need to make Christianity more macho and muscular. I know I'm the wrong person to, to lead in that initiative, but you know, maybe it's all these flowers. Uh, maybe we need to get some antlers and firearms on the wall. Uh, you can talk to Sherry about that, but um, there's more to it than that, and there's a discussion to be had there, but um, it's just funny to me that people really do try to make their churches more masculine by fussing over the decor. Um, but it is fun to meet, for me to make snide remarks about other people, too. I enjoy doing that. Uh, this is my confession time. But these are just some expressions of that same fear that we all face, I think. We all wrestle with that. We have a mission. We're here to proclaim Christ and make disciples and glorify God. Why doesn't it look more glorious? Why aren't there more glorious-looking people around here? No offense, I uh, should have thought that one through, but um, some of you look glorious. You know who you are. Um, but the question comes up, are we doing something wrong? Is God's plan somehow not working, or are we outside of God's plan? And so Luke's response to the situation centers on one major theme, and that is God's Plan. As Luke goes back to the beginning and tells the story of Jesus, it's like he takes a highlighter and marks up all the teaching and events that show that these things that might bother you, these are part of God's plan from the beginning. These are features of the kingdom. They're not bugs. At the beginning, we see an angel announcing God's plan, and a man who is also a priest doubts at first, but a woman believes. We see old Simeon predicting that Jesus would be a light of revelation for the Gentiles and that he would be a divisive figure and, and face opposition in Israel. Luke includes the Isaiah quote about John the Baptist as a voice crying in the wilderness, but Luke goes farther than that in, in that section of Isaiah to the point where Isaiah says, all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. The gospel to the Gentiles is the plan from the beginning. In Luke, we read of a Roman centurion and Jesus' assessment of that centurion's faith that not even in Israel have I found such great faith. In Luke, we read the names of women who were with Jesus along with the twelve, Women who received Jesus' grace and women who provided financially for the ministry. In Luke, Jesus praises his heavenly Father for hiding the things of the kingdom from the wise and revealing them to children. This was God's doing and God's plan. In Luke, we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Both are pictures of someone that the people hated, but God showed favor to. In Luke, we see Mary, a woman, abandoning the, the, the needs of the kitchen and adopting the posture of a disciple sitting at Jesus' feet. It would have been scandalous at the time. We could go on, but Luke makes the point from the beginning of Jesus' ministry that Gentiles were a part of God's plan. Women were a part of God's plan. Sinners were a part of God's plan. Suffering is part of God's plan. And conflict is part of God's plan. 
There are two main sections in Luke that deal with Jesus' ministry on earth. One runs from maybe about chapter 4 until chapter 9, verse 50, and this deals with Jesus' ministry in Galilee. The other picks up from there and covers Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. So in his ministry to Galilee, the identity of Jesus is revealed. And as he's revealed, he appears as a wedge that's being driven into the world. Those who meet him end up on one side of the wedge or the other. They follow him or they reject him. They're for him or they're against him. And, and opposition grows even as the crowds following him grow. In the next section, the journey to Jerusalem, Jesus teaches his disciples what it means to be a community that follows him. It will take endurance and faithfulness and persistence in prayer. Discipleship is not an easy road. We must hold fast to Christ to the end. We must persevere in the work that he has called us to do because he's coming back. That work, like Jesus' own work, is a labor of love. We're called to love our neighbors and love our enemies, to care for the lost, to care for the needy, not to build up our own greatness, because the, great, the greatest in the kingdom is the one who is slave of all. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will find it. As I mentioned, Jesus promises he's coming again. So we need to wait for his return and fear not. The Father has given us and will give us the kingdom and we can get to work and be confident that God is at work. And after those two sections are over, of course we have the final section where Jesus shows us what the kingdom looks like as he walks the road to the cross and suffers and dies. The way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. It's upside down. Jesus removes our guilt by being condemned as guilty. Jesus overcomes our shame by being humiliated. Jesus clothes us in his righteousness by being stripped and given a robe in mockery. Jesus reconciles our relationship with God by being abandoned and betrayed and denied by his friends. Jesus gathers us in by being cast out. Jesus shows us God's favor by enduring God's wrath. Jesus breaks the curse by becoming a curse. Jesus conquers sin by becoming sin for us. Jesus shows love by being hated. And Jesus defeats death by dying. And this is how God brought us salvation. This is the fulfillment of God's plan. All of the Old Testament promises were leading up to this moment, the crucified man. Jesus himself makes this point toward the end of the book of Luke in chapter 24 as he's talking to his disciples after the resurrection. And he goes through the Old Testament, the scriptures, and says that this is what these scriptures are saying. This is what they're pointing to, that Christ must die and rise on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness in his name should be proclaimed among all nations. In the life of Christ, this upside-down nature, this is a feature. It is not a bug. 
The rejection and crucifixion of Christ was not a bump in the road. The inclusion of the Gentiles is not plan B. The calling of the weak and despised in the world's eyes, it's not because God can't do any better. It's how God works. It's how his grace works. Martin Luther said, God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores to health none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, and life to none but the dead. He has mercy on none but the wretched, and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. If we are despised and rejected, we are in good company. We're in the company of our Savior. Life might not look the way you expected it to. Life as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, might not look the way you expected. But we're following a Savior who wasn't what anyone expected either. And the more we get to know him, the more we know who we are supposed to be. The more we get to know him, the more we can know for certain the things that we were taught. And we were taught that Jesus loves us. This we know. For the Bible tells us so. Little ones to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. Let's pray. Father, we are gathered here before you in need of the assurance that only you can give because life is hard because we are all facing struggles and conflicts, trials and temptations of various kinds and we all at one time or another in one way or another are are facing questions and facing doubts and the answer for those doubts is Christ We need you to show us who he really was. We need you to open up our hearts and our eyes to to receive him, to receive his love, to receive his word. Apart from you, we can hear these words and, and just hear them. We can be like the the person who looks in a mirror and walks away and forgets what he saw. We can can simply have some good feelings here but not be changed, not be transformed by what we have seen. And so we ask that both now and as we continue to go through the book of Luke, that you would be at work in us. Help us to see Christ. Help us to understand who he really is. Break through our preconceptions and our preferences, our ideas about who we want him to be, our savior that we make in our own image, and impress upon our hearts the truth of who Christ is. Help us to see him and know him and love him and rejoice in him and
and be made new like him. So that as we live out our calling here on earth, waiting for his return, that we would be faithful and confident in our mission to show his love and proclaim his gospel to those in need. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.